morning, everybody. So glad to have you today as we continue this biopic on a larger-than-life true character on the stage of human history, King David. Uh, before we jump in, I want to give a big shout-out uh, to a friend, uh, some friends, and that is our Die Ball Correctional Center. They've launched live services again last week, over 100 in attendance. They had 45 first-time guests and 14 decisions for Christ last week. What? What's up, Die Ball? So glad to have you back. And uh, listen, Duncan Unit, we're so thrilled to see what God is doing there, too, through uh, our dream teamers. We, we love you. And listen, uh, Die Ball and Duncan, you guys are not a church project. Uh, we, we want you to feel like you're part of our church family. And so you may not be able to give an offering, but we still want you to give your prayer requests. We want to uh, receive those so we can be praying over you and believe in God's best for you and be praying over your family. So thanks for joining us today. Well, let's jump in today, and I, I want to I mention this before we get started, that the Bible is full of incredible information, but we don't read the Bible just to get through the Bible. We read the Bible so that the Bible will get through us. It's not about reading it through in a year, although that may be the habit of some of you, and I think that's a wonderful, incredible habit. Reading it through in a year is better than never reading it through in any year, but it's a lot of information, and it can be overwhelming. But the, the, the goal of the Bible is not to give you information about God. It's for you to truly know him because he knows you. And the goal of preaching is not just to give you information. The goal of preaching is application. The same with the word of God. The goal is not to just hear the word, but like do the word. In the book of James, James says to his audience, do not listen to the word and just, and merely just listen to it and deceive yourselves do what it says. Jesus himself says, uh, if, you, if you listen to the word and you hear it, but you don't do anything with it, you're like a contractor who builds a huge house on a foundation of sand. But if you listen and do, you're like a contractor who builds on a solid foundation. Unfortunately, in the church, we have a whole lot of people that are overeducated beyond their obedience. They know the word, but they don't do the word. Jesus gives us this warning. He says there's a lot of people that will say, Lord, Lord, but they never make it into the kingdom of heaven because they didn't truly do what the Lord invited them to do. And that's how we try to communicate on Sunday mornings and in our studies and in our teaching. I, I'm not here just to give you information about the Bible. You can know how big the ark is and why the cherubim are on it. And you can know all the gopher wood versus cypress wood on the ark. And, and you know, when Noah was, was uh, building it. And like, We can do all that, but that's not, that's information. The goal of the preaching at Timber Creek is to give you application. That, that you would be able to go beyond being inspired on a Sunday and and apply what you're hearing today on a Thursday. That it's just as important that in your prayer time you apply these words that you do in the break room or in the board meeting or in your parental responsibilities or in your marriage. The word of God is powerful when you apply it. And so today, uh, we're going to go a little bit different, though. Usually, I like to weave in information and application, information and application in our sermons. But today, we're just going to take some notes. I haven't even provided fill in the blanks today because we're just going to drink from the fire hose this morning. But, but here's what we're going to do. Part one of the message today, I'm going to give you some information. We're going to situate 
the situation with David. There's a lot going on in the background. But then part two, we're going to apply some things as we see David getting um, into his kingdom. What we've realized as we've gone through this shadow king, the life of King David, we started before David was even born and the desire for a nation to have a king. They, they, they anoint their first king by the prophet Samuel. He chooses and anoints Saul as king. Saul is king for 40 years. Then there are more things that happen after Saul dies. We're gonna get into that today. So part one, I'm, I'm, I'm calling this the establishing shot. A tool in the toolbox of a cinematographer in a sitcom or a movie is the establishing shot. Many times you will see as the credits open, there's the camera flying across the water over Miami. You already know, oh, it's going to be some kind of show in Miami. Or the, the show opens and it's, it's the rom-com that's going to happen in the middle of not just any park, but in the, the big city of New York right there in Central Park. And the people are going to fall in love as they run into each other. And they, you know, it's all this crazy stuff. Or maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a family feud and the establishing shot is family and land and cattle and controversy and casinos. And or maybe it's HGTV and your mother-in-law is trying to sell her Airbnb. <laughs> Whoever it is. This is the establishing shot. What I'm going to do is I'm going to situate kind of uh, two territories today. And if you want to take notes and try and put them together, go for it. If not, just, just soak it in today. So on one side of our story today, we have the leader, King Saul. King Saul is the leader for over 40 years of the, uh, of the nation of Israel. And he has a capital city, much like Texas has Austin and uh, Kansas has Topeka and Oklahoma, who cares? But, but the capital city of the Israelis, where King Saul has his, has his main uh, throne, is in the capital of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is one of the cities in Israel, and it's a Benjamite city. So I want you to see this, that the people of, the people of Israel that the leader is leading, that the capital city is Gibeah, are the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are these 12 names. And you can see that from Asher to Reuben to Judah to Benjamin, Saul, King Saul, was a Benjamite. And he grew up in the city of Gibeah. So when he became king, he just automatically said, well, hey, the place I grew up was king. Uh, that's going to be the capital. And what it caused was a little bit of jealousy with the other Israelites. Because like, what, what makes your tribe so much better than everybody else's that you would have? That's why Washington, D.C. is carved out of a few different states and was a neutral place to become the District of Columbia and the actual capital so that not one particular state could say, we have the capital like it should have been in Austin, but, you know, we just put it up there, okay? So now here's that one area. Now let's talk about the other territory. And this territory, the leader is David. He is not a king. He's more of a gunslinger for hire. He's more of a mercenary guerrilla warrior. He's more of uh, just uh, some kind of tribal chieftain. 
And his capital is not really the capital of a state. It's a home base where he is living in, where his team gathers and is their home. And it's the capital, it's the home base called Ziklag. I love that Ziklag. Does everybody say Ziklag? Good job. Oh, you're so smart. Now, Ziklag, Ziklag is not an Israeli city. It's actually a Philistine city. It was a gift of the king of the Philistines. And their favorite warrior, by the way, their favorite Philistine warrior was a guy who was really tall and really strong, really bad mamma jamma named, named Goliath that David killed. Okay, the favorite son of Gath was Goliath. And the king of Gath actually gifted the city of Ziklag to David. Now, why would he gift something to the guy who assassinated their number one guy? Because years later, when David became an outlaw, because Saul did not want David to be king, Saul actually began to, instead of fighting his real enemies, he fought David. Well, David became a gun for hire, and he started working for the Philistines, and he would go out and raid other villages. They weren't Israeli villages. They were Edomite villages and Ammonite villages and Termite villages. No, that's a different thing. And, 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 and uh, Amalekite villages. And they would take the loot, and they would bring it back, and the king would get rich of the Philistines, and he'd give David a portion, and his people would live off of that portion they would get from raiding these other places. And his people, they were not a tribe. They were a group. Think of Bad News Bears meets the Dirty Dozen meets Desperate Housewives of Atlanta. I don't know. But like these people are, uh, they're also guns for hire, outlaws, mercenary guerrilla warriors. So if you're a mercenary guerrilla warrior, you're going to attract mercenary guerrilla warriors. If you, if you eat the lamb chop and you got gravy in your beard and saliva on your chin, you're going to attract gravy and beards, saliva on chin. I mean, these guys were late on their child support. They weren't paying alimony. They were wanting it, wanted in four tribes. And these are David's mighty men. They were not loyal to a God. They were not loyal to a tribe. They were not loyal to one another. They were loyal, loyal to David. And they became what was called the Giborim, David's mighty men. And so now we have situated these two major forces in the Middle East. And they're also surrounded by all these other cultures. Now, last week we left the story. It's been 40 years since Saul was anointed as king. And he's up to the point of his death. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 31, they're fighting the Philistines and the fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. He took his life on the battlefield. Now the reason for this was not because he was suicidal. The reason for this was it was either take his own life because his armor bearer wouldn't or he was going to be massacred and uh, desecrated, dragged behind a chariot for who knows how long once the Philistines would find him. So to save himself from that torture, he falls on his own sword. And the next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and they stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines with trumpets and the good news. They set it in the temples 
of their idols and among their people. Saul is dead. His children are dead. Long live the Philistines. It's a terrible moment. Israel doesn't know what to do. They shudder under the news that their king is dead. Their king is dead. What will they do next? They've never had to replace a king. They've never had an assassination of a king. They've never lost this bat. And they begin to crumble under the opposition of the Philistines and other enemies. Now, it doesn't take long for someone to travel all the way across lots of territory, deep into the camp of David there in Ziklag, and find an audience with David there at some tavern somewhere. And this is where we pick up the rest of the story. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Now, why does it say his clothes are torn and he's got dust on his head? That isn't because he went through a landmine. It's not because he went through a sandstorm. It's not because he got beat up on the way and and he's got tattered clothes. It's because he is showing signs that when someone would grieve, someone would mourn, they would rip their clothes They would pour ashes on their head and they would grieve someone's death. So he's positioned himself to show himself to David and his mighty men. I'm in mourning, I'm grieving, I've got terrible news. And he gets in front of David and here's what David says. Where have you come from? And the man who's in the torn clothes and ashes, he says, look, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Many of them fell and they died. And then he says, and Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. Now, this isn't just news. This isn't just the coffee's cold. This is, this is Jonathan, David's best friend growing up. This is Saul, the king who David was loyal to, even as Saul was chasing him and trying to kill him. This is Saul and Jonathan who David protected and loved. This is his father-in-law who gave him the gift of one of his daughters, Michael, in marriage because he slayed the giant, Goliath. This is a lot for David to take in in this moment. So David said to the young man, because he doesn't know if he can even believe it. He said to the young man who brought in the report, how do you know? How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? How do you know this? Who told you this? Now, if for some reason you've been envisioning this sackcloth and ashes, torn clothes, warrior escaping the battlefield, if you've been been imagining him like this, I want you to shift your, 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 your paradigm and I don't want you to think so much a brave heart as much as I want you to think of this guy that thinks he's going to live with no regrets, but he's definitely earmarked his existence with one because here's how the rest of the story goes. He stands up and he starts telling the story. Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul and he was leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. 
And when Saul turned around and saw me, he called out to me, hey, you, hey, you, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. Now, did this really happen? No, because we've already read how Saul died. Saul killed himself. So I stood beside him and killed him, and I took the crown, and he pulls out of his gunny sack the crown, and David recognizes it immediately. It was on his head in the band. David remembers that band. He remembers it gleaming in the, in the candlelight as Saul rose a javelin to try and pin him to the wall. He remembers riding next to him on different uh, renegade trips where they would go and they would rout the enemy. And David looked up to Saul and he sees the crown and he sees the band and he remembers back when he was a wee child standing in front of the king who took his armor and began to put it on David and said, if you're gonna go fight Goliath, wear my armor. And David is taking all this in and little does this gentleman know he's made a grave error? And as this man says, I brought him your, the crown and I brought you the band, brought them here, my Lord. And he gets down on a knee and he lowers his head. I wonder if this guy is thinking, I'm going to be rich. I wonder if he's thinking, I'm going to get all the girls. I wonder if he's thinking, that chariot Porsche 911 is coming my way. And David said, let me get this right. You're saying you killed him. He says, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to brag. You, you, you're saying with your own hand, your own hand, you struck down, you struck down Saul. He's like, I got, I got you, boo. I got you. And then the regrets begin. Because David said, who do you think you are? For years, the king chased after me and I had plenty of times to strike him down. You think if I wanted him dead, I could have done it myself. I, I'm a pretty good shot with a sling. You think I could have, he was, he was in a cave using the bathroom. I snuck up and cut part of his t-shirt off. You think I could have killed him on the toilet? What did you think you were going to get out of this? And this is where the guy goes, uh, beep, beep, beep. And before he can even give an excuse, David snaps his finger. and His right-hand man, Joab right through the space between the no and the regrets. Hurls a javelin through his throat and the man dies right there. Didn't see that coming. For as much as he loved God, he was merciless with certain things. So here we are. This man tried to tell David some news that thought he would get him into position. Can I, can I just give you a real quick application? I said this was just information, but... You can't curry favor with people of integrity by living a life without integrity. You, you, you can't cheat on something and keep favor with someone who lives in integrity. That might get you a head first, but you'll lose your head eventually. You gotta, you gotta be full of integrity, everybody. 
You gotta live, live right. God will reward living right. You don't have to fake a grieve. You don't have to fake being a military genius or a ruthless warrior. You be you. God will protect you. God will give you what you need. Don't try to advance, especially with people of integrity, by doing things that lack integrity. So what are they going to do? This is the first time they've been without a king. The last king was anointed by the prophet Samuel with oil and Saul becomes king. Now what are they going to do? Because Samuel's not even on the scene anymore. They've been living their own life. They're like, they're like a college student that leaves you know, the house. Let me live my life. You don't even know, God. We're going to do it my way. And that's what they're doing. So they don't even, look, look, look. Here's what's sad. They don't even go to God. They don't even ask God. They talk amongst themselves. And the general of this kingdom, Abner is his name, he talks to a bunch of these guys and they agree and they say, sounds good to me, sounds good to you, sounds good to me. And they go to one of the remaining living sons of Saul and they make him king. There were two sons. One, his name was Mephibosheth. Now Mephibosheth is an adult and the reason he's not king and not chosen, he's actually the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. And probably because Jonathan was the oldest and would have been heir to the throne, now Mephibosheth would be the next. But Mephibosheth, when he was a child, his nanny was holding him and there was a raid of where they were living by an enemy. And the nanny began to run. You can read this in the Bible. The nanny began to run with Mephibosheth and fell and landed on Mephibosheth and crushed his legs and it disabled Mephibosheth ever since he was a child. So because he's disabled, he's disqualified to be the king in this culture. Also because he's disabled and has no dad and his grandfather is dead, he's not gonna have any existence in the future. Later on, we'll talk about Mephibosheth and how all of us you'll see David invite Mephibosheth back to the king's table and treat him like royalty. Sneak peek, we're all Mephibosheths. And Jesus took your place of being crushed so you could sit at the king's table. Ooh, that'll preach today. But that's not the message today. His, older, his younger brother, not Mephibosheth, but Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth takes the throne. And, you know, I want you to think, you know, King Humperdink and Princess Bride. If you don't know, you, you know, if you don't know, you need to know. Right. You, you, you got to think you got to think like not not a, a Sean Connery bravely and courage Lancelot. Like you don't need to think Sean Connery King. You think Ishbosheth. Because Saul lasted for 40 years Ishbosheth is only going to last for two, and immediately he begins turmoil. He's, he's accusing the guy who, who put him into position, who's the strongest guy of like cheating on his, 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 his dad's wife and all kinds of like crazy, desperate housewives of Gibeah. Okay? And things are starting to go a little crazy. Ishbosheth is not a good leader. Just because you're the son of somebody doesn't mean you ought to take over the family business. I can guarantee you that. And one of these tribes, the tribe of Judah, they're the largest, strongest tribe. They say, hmm, I think we've had enough. 
and they do what Texas did in 2047. They secede. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They go down to David. Judah says, we've had all we can stands. We can't stands no more. And they go to, to, to David and they say, David, you're a Judean. We're Judean. We're with you. If you want to be our king, we'll let you be king. And sure enough, they anoint David now. He's not just an outlaw warrior bandit. He now becomes the king of Judah. And this is where we see in the Bible when you read about the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, there is this moment in time where there are a split civil war kingdom north and south. David, because he has Judah now, they get rid of Ziklag. They escape out of, they leave Ziklag behind and they go to, the, to one of the big cities in Judah and that's the city of Hebron. And now David is king of Judah in Hebron. And it's David's mighty men and the Judeans. The story continues. Remember old Ishbosheth up here? Well, Ishbosheth had two men who were leaders of raiding bands, and those guys' names were Rechab and Bana. You know the secret of knowing how to pronounce names in the Bible? Just say them like you know how to say them, and people will believe you. Because <laughs> I don't, I just wing it. It's Rechab and Bana. I don't know. Baana, Rechab, whatever. Rechab and Banna. Now, watch this. Banna, Rechab and Banna set out for the house of Ishbosheth. They were raiders. They were on team Ishbosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. And they gallop up to the gates. The guards let him in because they know Rechab and Banna. They're leaders in the raids. And they go in as to get wheat from the kitchen, the Bible says. And they had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in the bedroom. Ishbosheth taking his siesta. Every king needs his sleep. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. It's a coup d'etat. It's an inside job. It's a massacre. It's an assassination. After they cut off his head, taking it with them. What's it? The head. They traveled all night by way of the Arabah. Now, when you think of Rechab and Bana, and you get in your mind what Rechab and Bana might be like as a dynamic duo, I don't want you to think this dynamic duo. I don't want you to think buds for life. We're in it to win it. I want you to think this dynamic duo. Because they take the bloody stump <laughs> and they shove it in a gunny sack and they go past Araba. And where do you think they might go? Hey, let's go tell David what we did. Deja vu. Deja uh -oh. And They go before the king in Hebron. They say, they go, <gasps> David, he says, what's going on? And they say, here is the head of Ishbosheth. And, and Ishbosheth's like, oh. and they roll it to the foot of the throne. 
son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. And David said, you killed Ishbosheth? We killed him. You're saying with your own hands, you assassinated the king? We got you, boo. And as they lean in and bow, they're thinking to themselves, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to get married. And I'm kill him. And they were like, what? And there they are, beheaded right there in the palace. Be careful what you brag about, everybody. So, Ishbosheth is dead. David is king of Judah in Hebron. And the rest of these 11 tribes are starting to look around and say, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I don't know. I don't necessarily want to say it out loud because if we say it out loud, I don't know what's going to happen, but are you thinking what I'm thinking? I'm thinking what you're thinking. And they say, David's been the guy. David's been the guy. I was there with Goliath. I was there when he routed the Philistines. Do you know what he did to 200 Philistines just to get the hand of Michael in marriage? If you don't know, I'll tell you. He circumcised 200 Philistines and brought back the SpaghettiOs. <laughs> Y'all not read the Bible, it's graphic. That's not application, that's information, <laughs> by the way. That's starting point chapter five for those of you going through. Sorry. They say David's been the king. We just haven't acknowledged him. So all of these 11 tribes, they gather together and they head south. And they meet up with David in the city of Hebron. And the Bible says when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David. He was already anointed. But they just had to be a part of it now. They just said, okay, you were. But we want to reemphasize. Re you're, you're king. Help us get out of this. And here, they're all together, all becoming one again. But now David has to make some important decisions as now the king, the first, the now the next monarch of a unified nation. And he has to go back to Hebron and realize that that's a Judean city. And just like Saul had Gibeah, which was a Benjamite city, David had Hebron, which was a Judean city, and the rest of everybody else is saying, what, is Judah better than all of us? So David does some unbelievable, incredible strategic leadership. And he grew up in the little town of Bethlehem, this king did, shepherd. And there in the distance of Bethlehem, about eight to 10 miles away, was a city named Jebus. And Jebus was a massive fortified, the walls were incredible, the way it was stationed and situated, it was like a city on a hill. When, at nighttime, you could see the glow of the lanterns from Jebus. But it was a pagan city, it was an enemy city. And so David gets his group together and says, hey, if we're gonna have a capital, it can't be a, a, a Dan capital or an Asher capital or a Nephtali capital. It's got to be a new place, and we need a fortified city because we've got a lot of enemies. And already the Jebusites were enemies of Israel. And so David's first act 
is he gathers his group, he gathers the military, and he conquers Jebus. And they rename Jebus a different name. And today that city still exists. You can still put your hands on some of those walls that existed back when David took it over. It's the city of Jerusalem. And this city of David, Zion, the city on a hill, is going to be a pivotal city. It's gonna be an establishing shot of a lot of what Jesus is going to do then, now, and forever. There's something powerful about this epicenter of history. So now we have a solidified kingdom. King David, capital city of Jerusalem, all 12 tribes of Israel are together and they're ready to live happily ever after. Just know that when you get everything figured out, when you feel like you've risen to a new level, can I say something to you? Part two, new level, new devil. For every new level, there's always a new devil. For every pay raise, trust me, you're gonna find a way to spend it, I promise you. You can say, if I only had this much more, and then you're gonna have that much more, and then you say, well, if I only had this much more. For every new level, there's a, there's, a, there's a new car. For every new level, there's a new devil. For every new situation, there's gonna be something that the enemy's gonna see and wanna attack. And sure enough, the key chief enemy of the Israelites sees what is happening, and they don't like it. And that chief enemy is the Philistines. And the reason why the Philistines were the strongest enemy against Israel was because they had invented something. They had invented iron forging. They were able to make weapons out of iron in the Bronze Age. And so the Israelites mostly had bronze weaponry and a bronze sword against an iron sword won't last longer than the iron sword. And the Philistines had dominated. Also, here's another thing. The Philistines got stronger and stronger because Saul didn't deal with the right enemy. He was chasing David, who wasn't his enemy. He was chasing his fellow uh, warrior. And he was distracted. So 2 Samuel 5, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines, saddle up, boys. We're going we to tell that young David a thing or two. All of the Philistines went up to look for David. Now, here's some application now as we wrap up. We'll say this to you, whether you're a, a teenager, a parent, a grandparent, whether you're, you're single, widowed, divorced. Regardless of this, oftentimes the enemy attacks when you're young. I don't mean when you're young just in age. I mean young in experience, young in a new thing, young in a victory. It is not when Jesus is sweeping up sawdust in his daddy's cabinet shop that the enemy comes in like a flood. But it is after he is baptized by John in the Jordan River, stands up, the sky splits open, the voice of God the Father says, this is my boy, I love him, I am pleased with him. And Jesus walks into the wilderness that the enemy attacks hard. It can be right after God speaks to you, the enemy's gonna attack. It can be after a great victory, the enemy is poised to get you because you can let your defenses down just as you're raising your arms in victory and crossing the, 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 the finish line ribbon and you miscalculate and the enemy is there. Oftentimes the enemy attacks when you're young. And so David is young in his kingdom and the Philistines like, we gotta hit him hard before he gets things organized, before he buys that new catapult, before he gets them all trained up in the slingshot and whatnot. 
We got to get them. Do you know this is, the enemy is after your kids, everybody. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a fairy tale enemy, like some kind of cartoon looking French guy with some thin, you know, mustache, uh, thin handlebar mustache with a red spandex wrestling singlet, you know, walking around with a pitchfork <laughs> that poof, shows up on a shoulder. He is like a roaring lion. And he don't care whether you're 42 or 12. He's after you to steal, kill, and destroy you while you're young. This is why it's so important that while our kids are young, we develop the Christ-like character and convictions and conduct. I'm not asking you to bring your kids to, to church just so we can have more kids in the kids' centers in Nacogdoches and Lufkin. I'm inviting you to let us be a partner because your kids need a strong foundation in a culture that's gone upside down with sin. A culture that doesn't understand logic and reason has been thrown out for whatever makes us feel a certain way. And feelings trump logic, trump consequences. And the way we just think about things and the way we just assume things have become stronger than any kind of real moral compass. And you may think it's a kind of a fuddy-duddy, traditional kind of old style to believe that the Word of God is the foundation for life. But I want you to know that that's, that's what we believe here. And, you know, you're, you're welcome to come and kick the tires on Christianity and investigate the claims of Christ. Many times we've had um, those of Jewish background and those of, of Muslim background join us, not only uh, live in our broadcast location in Nacogdoches, but there in Dybal and Duncan. And maybe that's you and you're just there just, just because, hey, this is something that's out of the ordinary. I want you to know that, that we believe in the power of the word of God being the moral compass for every decision that we make. And I want that for my kids and I want it for my my kids' future spouses if they get married. I mean, do I want them not to be a bum? Well, sure. But more importantly than what their job is, more importantly than what their degree is, and we spend a bajillion dollars as a society as our kids turn 18 because we want them to get that degree because it's so important, and yet we fail to invest not money but the time in their convictions and character and conduct that's actually going to be what makes them sustain the degree and leadership and grow because a degree, how many know, you don't get fired fast whether you you got a degree or not if you don't have the right convictions and the right character and the right conduct great you're a doctor you won't show up on time like great great you're 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 a physicist but you're like cheating all the time like we, we need to invest into those things and so I invite you make church on Sundays on the week on the weekends midweek where there's opportunity make it a priority in your kids lives because everywhere they turn, someone is begging to be their God. Culture is begging to be their God. As I said, there's no child-sized devil. He's not walking around, <laughs> I'm going to get you. The same devil that tempts me is the same devil that's after your five-year-old. He's after you when you were a kid. And something terrible happened to you. The enemy wants you to stay wrapped up in that. 
wants to keep you down there. You're you're 30 years older, but you're still dealing with that. The good news is there's no child-sized Holy Spirit either. And the same Jesus that raised from the dead and whose spirit lives in you can live in the life of your seven-year-old. Can encourage and empower and give guidance and wisdom to them too. God is real and so is the enemy. And he wants to attack you. He's after you. He holds a grudge. Now, the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim and the entire grass is covered by tents. All the tents in the entire valley as far as the eye can see. And David is a warrior, so what's he gonna do? Is he gonna walk down with a slingshot and say, bring out your best guy? That's familiar. What's David's first step? Because many times, a leader's first decisions are some of the most important decisions they'll ever make because it sets the tone of where their presidency, where their leadership, where their management is gonna go. Those early moments on, people are watching a lot more closely than they're gonna watch three years later and the way you set the tone. So this is David's first battle with all of the tribes behind him as the king of Israel. What's the first thing he does? The Bible says, he doesn't go, freedom, and paint his face blue. The Bible says, David inquired of the Lord. As strong as a military leader he was, he took time to inquire, to talk to God. What we see, the juxtaposition of the previous king, when these enemies attacked Saul, Saul turned to his flesh. Saul turned to his own tactics. Saul turned to his own spear. Saul turned to his own thoughts. Saul turned to his to witchcraft. Saul turned to rebellion. Saul turned to his own might. And it was the story of the entire nation. As goes the leaders, so go the people. When the enemy attacks David, though, David turns to God first. Here's the question of application Where do I turn? When the heat is on, when things are tight, when a situation turns south, where do I turn? That's a good question, but it's not the best question. Here's the more important important question. Where do I turn first? Because I know that many of you, you do turn to God, but it's not first. He's he's in the arsenal, He's, he's in the toolbox. Many times we turn to what makes us comfortable first, what we think first, what's gonna get us ahead first, what we just assume first, what we think we know, somebody's advice on Facebook, because that's reliable, because they're after your best interest. David turns to prayer, he turns to God first. Write it down, prayer is our first response, not our last resort. It's not a, God, I've done everything now. I'm just asking you, please don't let me get caught. Or God, please help me pass this. Or God, please like show up because I've done all, everything else. God's your first response, not your last resort. Prayer is the key to everything we should do and be. It's the key to everything in your life. I'm telling you, what? I'm not, and the reason why some of us struggle with that, prayer is the key, is because you don't understand prayer. You're, when I say prayer, you're thinking, now I lay me down, I sleep, I my soul, I and if I die before I wake, 
What a wonderful prayer to pray to your kids. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Trauma. You don't understand the necessity. L let me put it in terms maybe you can understand better. Let's say you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that you would die tonight. But there was medicine that if you take the medicine, you'll be okay. And you need to take this medicine every day. If you don't take it, you die. But if you'll take this medicine, it'll stave off that death. It won't make your life perfect. You may still have pain, but it will sustain you. How many of you would forget every once in a while? How many of you say, ah, when I get to it? Man, you'd have four alarms. You'd have people in your life reminding you. You might have even some people like trying to trick you, you know, your spouse. I think you already took it. I think you're good. I think you're good. <laughs> Better inquire the Lord on that one. <laughs> like you would do whatever it takes. Listen to me, friends. Prayer isn't a, a mantra. It's a, it's a key. It's a communication connection with the God of the cosmos. It's the key to everything you should do and be because when we pray, God searches our heart. When we pray, we humble ourselves. When we pray, he listens and he speaks and it reminds us who's really in charge and David inquired of the Lord. David prayed and here's what he prayed. The first thing I think is so surprising what he prays first. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And I'm thinking, there they are. They're out to get you. He's praying, should I even fight them? Write it down. This is some application. Are you fighting battles that are not yours to fight? Have you even prayed about some of the battles you're fighting? You got this conflict with a friend, a conflict with an employer or employee. You got an issue with your parent. You got an issue with a, 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 a coworker. You got an issue with your spouse. And you fight and you fight, but you've never even inquired of the Lord. Should we even be fighting on this? He inquired of the Lord, even if he should fight. That's how committed David was to the voice of God in his life. And the Lord said to David, okay, here's what you do. Go up. I'm going to certainly hand them over to you. So David came to Baal Perazim, and he defeated them there. And here's what David said after they routed the enemy. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Like a... So he named that place Baal Perazim, which means master of breakthroughs. You know, we sang today, Jireh is more than enough. That's one of his names. I also want you to know one of his names, master of breakthroughs. And you've been trying to chisel away at that wall. He's the master. Inquire of him. You can trust him. That sounds, like, that's, that sounds like a song in the making, Pastor Cody. A master of breakthroughs. Here's what happens. The Philistines abandoned their pagan idols there. 
They had idols there to kind of keep them safe and make sure that the victory God was out front and the, the sword God and the arrow God and the fire God and anybody else's God, whatever. They had those all out there and they ran from them. They didn't do very good for them, did they? They left their idols and so David and his men took them away to be burned. In 2 Samuel, it just says carried them off. In 1 Chronicles 14, the same story is shared, and it says they carried them off to be burned. See, here's Israel's problem. It's not that they didn't believe God was God. They just didn't believe God was enough. So it was always for Israel, God plus a backup. God plus plan B. And I wonder if that's you and me sometimes. It's God plus plan B. It's God plus whatever my personal opinions about this. God's word is enough when it comes to these seven things, but I'm gonna take liberty and license because this doesn't align up with my current cultural climate today. He took him away to be burned. David is showing them we're not gonna add anything else into this thing. It's God and God only. God and God only. David is showing us something that we've talked about all throughout this series. When his presence is all I have, I have all I need. I don't need any other idols. Because here's the deal, everybody. Listen close. If God isn't first in your life, he is not God in your life. If God is not first, he's not God. There's only one position God will take. Number one. Thou shall have no other gods before me. Can you have some hustle? Can you have some plans? Can you have some ideas? Can you have some strategies? Oh, you better believe it. You ought to be a thinking Christian. Like you got two feet in a heartbeat for a reason. He gives you gifts and opportunities for a reason. But God's gotta be first, not your gift. God first, everything else after that. That's his strategy. That's his idea for life. Well, the Philistines, sure enough, they were upset. They went home licking their wounds. Oh, that David makes me so mad. Doesn't he make you so mad? Oh, David. Put his picture up. They're throwing darts at it. And finally, one of the guys in the Philistines say, I'm so sick and tired of that guy thinking he's all that. Let's go show him what, I mean, they, yeah, they beat us, whatever. Like, let's, let's round two. It's time for a rematch. I want a rematch. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Philistines came up once again. And just like they did the first time, you, th you, think they would have, you think they would have come up with a different strategy, but they didn't. They just did what they felt like was right. They spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Now, David, they'd already won once because they had inquired of the Lord. So I wonder if David is standing there and Joab, his, his right-hand man, like David is Wyatt Earp and Joab's like Doc Holliday, you know? Doc Holliday comes up, ding. That's a spittoon on the battlefield, I don't know where it came from, but it's there. Joab says to David, we're gonna do it through the middle again, just like last time? That was awesome. And David's like, give me a second. David trots the horse about 20 feet away. The first time he was away, and he was listening to God, and he came back and says, boys, we're going straight down their throat. And those Israelites said, let's go. David inquires of the Lord again. And he trots away and he asks God, what do I do? Write it down. 
every time the enemy attacks, you got to go back to God. Just because he gave you a plan for last time doesn't mean it's going to be the same plan for next time. Just because your parents raised you a certain way and disciplined you a certain way, your kids need discipline, but it doesn't need to necessarily always look like the same discipline your parents gave you. My kids, both in the same house, they're going to follow the same rules. Discipline looks a little different because they respond to discipline a little differently. God's going to give me a strategy for how I raised my 13-year-old son versus how I raised my 18-year-old daughter. It's going to be the same character, convictions, and conduct, but the strategy might look a little different. Every kid you have, you go back to God. I mean, hello, amen. You go back to God. Enemy attacks, you don't just assume that the strategy God gave you for that situation yesterday, that he's going to give you the same strategy for the same situation tomorrow because he's not a God of status quo. Prayer is the rebellion against status quo. Prayer is saying, God, I know, I think I know what to do, but that's status quo. What do you want to say? Because what you say goes. God, what do you want to do? Because what you say goes. When David inquired of the Lord, here's what God said. You shall not go straight up. Thank goodness he talked to him. Don't go straight up down the middle this time. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to circle around behind them, and you're going to come at them in the front of the balsam trees. This is like detailed. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, there's something geographical going on. There's some kind of echo thing. There's some kind of the hiding of the military walking in the balsam trees, the the leaves on the ground, the rustling, the wind blowing through the trees. There's something that was going to hide them, put them incognito to get around the edge of the Philistines in the valley. And pay attention and act promptly, for at that time the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Now this is is kind of crazy. This doesn't sound like a military plan. This sounds like the sound of music, Julie Andrews. But I want you to know something. Our God is a God of creative variations. Look at me, everybody. Listen to me, Dieball Duncan. Listen to me, Nag. In the Garden of Eden... God reveals himself as the divine greenskeeper, walking in the cool of the afternoon. In the book of Exodus, God reveals himself not as a greenskeeper, but in the form of a burning bush that speaks. And he doesn't just say, I am this person or I am that person. But Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am. I just, I am. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up for what is right in their lives and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. The king looks into the furnace that's heated up seven times hotter and there's a fourth man walking in that furnace and it looks like the son of the living God. When Daniel is thrown into a lion's den, he shows up in a creative variation, not as a greenskeeper, not as a cloud of fire or a fire by night or a cloud by day or, or a burning bush. He shows up as a lion tamer in the middle of the lion's den. Ultimately, one of the craziest ways that God shows up is when God sends his only son in the flesh. It seems normal to you and me, but that's one of the craziest variations of the God of the cosmos, that he would plant him in a womb and would grow for nine months and be born and not born to royalty, not born in the palace, not born to a pharaoh, not born to a king, but born to a carpenter. Born to a teenage girl so that he could creatively show us that he's willing to get to our level. 
just when you think you got God X plus Y equals God, you don't know God. You can't formula God, everybody. He will not be formulated. He's God. And he does what he jolly well pleases. And sometimes this person gets healed because they went to this place and they prayed that prayer and they had this evangelist. And so we start chasing after that variation and we get mad at God because he's got a different variation. He's got a different plan. His healing may be on the other side of eternity for you. His plan may be heaven for you. We prayed and prayed and prayed for my wife's sister in her mid-30s, diagnosed with breast cancer, a missionary, single missionary on the mission field, gets married and goes back to the mission field and gets cancer on the mission field and dies. And she had people praying for her. And we prayed the same prayer for other people. And they were healed. And she dies? What? You can't formula God. He knows more. He knows, he knows better. And we don't understand it. We're finite. And when he doesn't move the way we want him to move, we love to take it into our own hands. But David trusted the voice of God in his life as a young leader. Is he going to mess up? Oh, you betcha. Just wait over the next few weeks. I can't wait. Some of my absolute favorite crazy twists and turns coming in the next four weeks. But in this moment, this story ends that David did just as the Lord had commanded him. God's not looking for partial obedience. He's looking to, for you to just trust him, to just do what he's told you to do. Trust him, love him with all your heart, love people. He'll figure it out from there. You lean not on your own understanding. So the information and application today, maybe there's an enemy you're facing and maybe there's an idol that you need to burn. What do you do? You do what David did. Inquire of the Lord. In other words, go to Jesus. Listen to him because he'll talk. It may not be a spoken voice, but he'll prompt you. I know that. I believe that. I believe it. Parents, we're learning a new day with our 18-year-old. We've been there to answer a whole lot of questions. We've been there to help. We're not there right now. We're a FaceTime away, but our prayer has been changing. God, help, help her to depend on us less and depend on you more. And that's a hard prayer to pray because we want to fix it. We want to be. Sometimes we want to feel like we're God in her life. But we're a terrible substitute for God in her life. Then act promptly and repeat. <laughs> Inquire and listen, act promptly, and repeat. And I promise you, the same God that met David will meet you right where you are. But you don't have to face the enemy. Jesus says, step aside. I will face the enemy once and for all. I will sacrifice my own life. so that the way you fight your battles is you go to me because I'm the David. I'm the hero. I'm the warrior. It's not about you. It's about Jesus.
close your eyes with me and bow your heads. We'll do two moments of prayer here. The first is those of you that maybe there's an enemy you're facing or an idol to burn. If that's you and you do a little soul searching here and you inquire of the Lord, if that's you, maybe you just raise a hand and say, yeah, I got an enemy or yeah, I got an idol. I, yeah, I got an issue. I just wanna pray over you here. Our campus pastor wants to pray with you there in the, in the prisons or at Nacogdoches. Jesus, thank you for the hands lifted. I don't have an answer for them, but you do. You have direction for them and it may come real clear or you may, they may need to wait for the wind and the trees but I pray that they would wait on you. They that wait on you, their strength will be renewed and you will lift them up. Bless them in Jesus' name. Eyes closed, heads bowed still, you're here. The truth is, you're inquiring of the Lord. This may be the first time or the first time in a real long time and you've not invited him to be the Lord of your life, to be your king. The same way that those tribal elders went down to David and said, you're the king. You would take your place of position and you would humble yourself today and you would go to Jesus and you would say, be my king. In your own words, you would simply say, Jesus, I choose not to be my final authority. I don't wanna be separated from you. I believe you are who you say you are and because of what you did on the cross, you paid for my sin that separates me from you and I need a good king. I need a, I need a final authority and I want you to be that and I don't even know where to go next but that's where I wanna start today or restart today. And now you would say, thank you, Jesus, because you hear me when I pray. I've inquired of you and you have washed my sins away. Thank you. Jesus, I'm a new person. You're not mad at me, but you are mad about me and you are giving me this moment to make things right with you and, and you call me a son or daughter of the king and I don't have to be afraid and I don't have to face my battles alone because, because you will on my behalf. And I ask all these things in the name of Jesus, the king and the strong son of God. And everybody said amen.